Has the winter season taken a toll on your tile, upholstery, carpet? Call Cyclone Cleaners, 570-726-6200. For all your carpet, upholstery, and ceramic tile cleaning needs, it's Cyclone Cleaners. Also offering odor treatment and soil and stain guard. Choose the only cleaning company that supplies the water to clean your home and disposes of it when they are finished. Call Cyclone Cleaners to schedule your cleaning today, 570-726-6200. When an elderly World War II veteran and his loyal dog embark on a cross-country road trip, all goes smoothly until they reach the Big Lonely, a remote stretch of highway in northern Nevada desert suspected to be a hunting ground for serial killers. The unexplained disappearance of man and dog launch an enormous search that yields nothing but mystery in this episode of Last Seen Alive. This episode of Last Seen Alive is brought to you by Audible, where I get my true crime fix from audiobooks whenever I'm not listening to podcasts. I share some of my favorite true crime recommendations with you guys, but those represent a tiny fraction of the thousands of true crime titles they have to choose from. It's the beginning of a new month, so I just downloaded my latest choice, plus my free Audible originals. Subscribers get to choose two every month. For July, I chose a crime drama for myself and a nonfiction title on space exploration for my son, who swears he's going to be an astronaut. I like to use my free originals on kids' stuff, because if I can keep the kids entertained during car rides, I don't have to listen to them fight. And to be honest, I'd pay for that. It's just luck that I don't have to. Yeah. <laughs> Audible originals are free for all subscribers every month, but right now, Audible is offering Last Seen Alive listeners a free 30-day trial with a free audiobook of your choice. Try one of my favorites or choose one that appeals to you. It's totally your call. Head to audibletrial.com slash lastseenalive to activate your free trial and download your free audiobook. Thanks for listening to Last Seen Alive. I'm your host, Leah. And I'm your co-host, Scott. Today, we're heading west into a remote stretch of desert some call the Big Lonely. It's a place where anything might and can happen, all without others seeing which is exactly what makes crimes or potential crimes that occur there so difficult to solve. So crimes, not Texas this time? No, not Texas. <laughs> crimes like the one that was likely perpetrated against Patrick Carnes. Patrick Carnes was last seen alive on April 13, 2011. This last known sighting was captured via a Nevada Highway Patrol dash cam, and despite law enforcement officers' extensive efforts, Searches for the missing World War II veteran have yielded nothing but mystery and frustration. Patrick Carnes saw a lot, survived a lot, prior to his unexplained 2011 disappearance. He was 86 years old when he vanished, having served in the U.S. Navy Air Corps during World War II, participating in campaigns most of us have only read about in history books, like the Battle of Guadalcanal. And after that, he was fortunate enough to make it home, and he made the most of it, raising a family and enjoying life. By 2011, Patrick was enjoying his golden years in Reno, Nevada. He lived there with his constant companion, Lucky. Lucky was an eight-year-old Akita and Lab mix, and they went everywhere together. And when I say everywhere, I mean everywhere, including cross-country road trips. Lucky the dog weighed in at a solid 100 pounds. Some descriptions I've read of him describe him as a coffee table with legs, and when, <laughs> when you look at pictures of Lucky, it's easy to see why. 
Both man and dog were last seen together in their Subaru, stopped along the highway during that final recorded encounter. In the dash cam video, you can see Lucky's tail wagging. I guess he wasn't afraid of getting a ticket. Maybe, after driving so long, he was just excited for something to break up the monotony. By the time they were pulled over by that Nevada trooper, they'd already traveled almost 2,000 miles, almost all the way across the U.S. Patrick and Lucky had gone to Ohio to visit family, and in a move not many people Patrick's age would dream of, they'd driven the entire way. But Patrick wasn't a typical 86-year-old. He and Lucky embarked on long road trips every year. Patrick's sense of adventure had never diminished, and his mind had never dulled. It was almost as if his age had yet to catch up with him. And maybe it never did. Maybe something else caught up with him and Lucky in the northern Nevada desert, on that desolate stretch of highway some call the Big Lonely. Well, I mean, obviously when I'm 86, I'm going to be driving around doing road trips also, so I like the guy. Okay, but if anyone describes me as a coffee table with legs, I'm going to be mad. No, that I just remember my mom's dogs. <laughs> well, what, you mean corn dog? I do mean corn dog. <laughs> so I, it's just so much of this story already. I Patrick is a cool guy. There's no yeah, denying it. He's I like cool. Him. The trooper pulled Patrick over at about 9 p.m. for a moving violation. How fast was he going? I don't know, but like many <laughs> states, Nevada has a move-over law that requires motorists to move to the most distant lane whenever they pass a stopped emergency vehicle or traffic incident. Patrick had driven by the trooper, who'd been stopped with a truck without doing so. The trooper cautioned Patrick to move over next time he passed a stopped vehicle, and they spoke briefly. Patrick indicated that he'd been following a tractor trailer. He told the trooper, I'm only following him because he's going to Elko. By the way, we've got a link to the dash cam video on our website, lastseenalivepodcast.com, if you'd like to watch for yourself. Anyway, Elko is a small northern Nevada town located along Interstate 80. That's the interstate Patrick was traveling, heading southwest toward Reno. Elko was just under an hour's drive from the area near Wells, which is where the trooper stopped Patrick. Patrick, who'd been driving for days, seemed to be sort of taking it easy by following in the big rig's wake. I don't know what Patrick's eyesight was like, but he was 86 years old, so perhaps it was easier for him to visually follow another vehicle than it was for him to follow an empty road when driving at night. I know that even for young drivers, driving after dark is a whole different ballgame than driving during the day. And when it came to other vehicles on I-80 after dark, there was virtually nothing but large trucks. The traffic along the northern Nevada highway is more diverse during daylight hours, but at night, it's pretty desolate, and what little traffic there is is almost exclusively tractor-trailers. If you're not familiar with the area of northern Nevada that I-80 passes through, I recommend looking it up and checking out a few photos so you can really visualize the terrain Patrick was traveling over. The highway is flat and straight and seemingly endless. A long shot with an 80 mile per hour or 129 kilometer speed limit. And on either side, there's desert that stretches for miles and miles before fading into distant mountains. It's easy to see how the road got its nickname. It really is big and it's easy to imagine how it might feel lonely, especially at night. So Patrick had been following in the wake of that tractor trailer, using it as a kind of albatross that would leave him to Elko. Not to mention, I mean, you're driving that long. It You would definitely feel lonely. It would 
you I've followed vehicles and like when I drove out here for the first time there were other vehicles just so it didn't feel like you were driving alone it companionship yeah and that was less uh less distance than Patrick had been driving 2000 miles the drive from there to here is only 1300 so imagine anyway this raises the question how did Patrick know the truck was going to Elko it's not like the truck had neon lights blazing across its trailer announcing its destination. Patrick would have had to have spoken to the, its driver to know this for sure, right? You would think. It's the only logical explanation I can think of for Patrick being so certain of the truck's destination. But when and where Patrick spoke to the truck's driver, I don't know. I can't help but wonder, though, had this been an innocent encounter or was the truck driver luring Patrick somewhere? It's hard to tell. I mean... I know, it seems like a big leap right now, but as we move forward with the story and you hear what happened, it will seem much more reasonable. As somebody that's grown up in a family of truck drivers, I, I could see where it would happen. Okay, just... Being completely innocent encounter. Okay, hey, especially <laughs> Especially if I saw an older person that wasn't quite sure of where they were going. Sure. I look, I'm not biased. My grandfather, who is one of my favorite people on the face of the planet, drove a truck after he got tired of managing stores. So, I'm just being objective here. I know. I'm just saying. I can understand how it would happen. As could I. As could I. Anyway. There's always stories, though. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What Patrick did when the trooper pulled away and returned to patrol, leaving him and Lucky alone together in the night, is a complete mystery. Before sunrise, Patrick and Lucky would be suddenly and inexplicably gone. I'm wondering if that got him separated from the truck driver. Anyways. It probably did. Uh, I wonder if he ever ran, if they managed to reconnect or find each other on the roadway. Well, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know yet. Well, before disappearing, it seems that Patrick and Lucky did make it to Elko. Actually, it seems they made it about two and a half hours past Wells, where they were stopped by that trooper. Or, at the very least, their car made it. Patrick drove a green Subaru, and early the next morning, a driver in Pumpernickel Valley, Nevada, noticed that green Subaru sitting empty by Interstate 80, exit 205. Now, Pumpernickel Valley isn't a town. It's exactly what its name describes, a valley. And that's it. Exit 205 is very literally an exit to nowhere. Drivers who take Exit 205 will find themselves driving farther and farther out into the desert until the road ends. Now, this is a fairly foreign concept to me personally because where I live in the southeastern region of the U.S., roads go places, and there's no such thing as a lonely interstate. But northern Nevada is different, and Exit 205 really does just lead to a desolate road that extends into the desert until it stops. If I had to hazard a guess at why the road even exists in the first place, I'd say it's likely because the land is held by QX Metals, a multinational mining company that's cycled through numerous name changes. The company le leases the entire Pumpernickel Valley area, where, at one time, they were conducting a geothermal power project. Geothermal power, another concept foreign to my region, is power that's generated by the Earth's geothermal resources. It's a viable yet rarely used alternative to the much more popular methods like 
hydroelectricity, fossil fuels, and nuclear power. And it makes a lot of sense in a dry desert environment that's rich in geothermal power resources. From the limited information I've been able to locate, it seems that they'd planned to build a geothermal power plant in Pumpernickel Valley, but for whatever reason, this didn't actually occur and the area remained undeveloped. Geothermal power and business prospects aside, the area is a large, desolate valley, like a shallow, empty bowl. It's difficult to imagine why anyone would want to take exit 205. Unless, of course, they wanted to be very, very alone. Evidence suggests that Patrick hadn't planned to stop at exit 205, and possibly didn't stop there of his own free will. He had a map in his car that he'd marked all of his planned stops on, for restroom use, walking lucky, etc., and exit 205 was not marked. And it wouldn't be a very logical stop to make anyway, only about 10 minutes away, there was a gas station at exit 216. However, exit 205 is where Patrick's empty Subaru was found. And even more perplexingly, it was found facing the wrong direction. Patrick had been traveling west, and if he'd pulled over onto the side of the highway, he'd have been on the north side of the road. However, according to 8 News Now Las Vegas, his car had been abandoned on the south side of the highway, as if he'd been traveling in the opposite direction, back east. And the Subaru wasn't neatly parked on the shoulder, either. It had been left a short distance from the exit ramp, mired in sagebrush and lopsided, high-centered with its chassis stuck on earth that was higher than the tires. Okay, so I've got some questions. We, mm-hmm. He has his map marked out. Right. How far from his next scheduled stop was he? I wish I could tell you in minutes. I can't, but I did see a picture of the map, and he wasn't that far. So, it's possible to assume that he made it to his destination and then somebody else took the vehicle back? I mean, it's one of many possibilities, sure. Okay. Now, one of the first things I wondered when I heard how Patrick's car was left was whether he might have lost control of his vehicle, maybe dozed off for a moment or succumbed to highway hypnosis and subsequently spun across the opposite lane of traffic and became stuck on that mound of earth that had high-centered his vehicle. Is it a divided highway? Well, yes, there's only two lanes, one going one way well, and yeah, the other going like, the other is way. Is there a median in between the two lanes? Oh. Or is it, no, they... there's just painted lines. Okay, so that could happen. Yeah, so... However, none of the articles I've read about this case, and I've read everything I could find, mention any telltale signs that would be left by an accident like this occurring, such as tire marks on the asphalt or disturbed earth. So, to the best of my knowledge, there were no marks left at the scene indicating that Patrick had lost control of his vehicle and spun out due to overcorrection. Not to mention, to do a complete 180, that would leave some pretty significant tracks. It definitely would, especially in this dry, kind of dusty ground. I feel certain that they would have been able to see that. Or other signs of a crash. Right. However, America's Most Wanted did a segment on Patrick's disappearance, and they included photos of the abandoned Subaru. One thing I noticed was that the driver's seat was reclined farther back than the passenger seat. It almost looked like it had been adjusted not for driving, but for resting in, as if perhaps Patrick had grown tired and pulled over for a nap. 
This doesn't seem to explain why the car was so far off the side of the road and stuck on the uneven earth and sagebrush, though, or why the car was on the wrong side of the road. Is it possible that Patrick pulled over to rest on the wrong side of the highway for some reason, then accidentally became stuck and thought, oh well, I'll deal with it in the morning, and then reclined for a nap? That seems really strange to me, especially since the high-centered car is really uneven. It's hard to believe that anyone would settle in and attempt to nap at such an uncomfortable-looking angle. If you'd like to judge for yourself, though, check out our website, lastseenalivepodcast.com. We've got a picture of the stranded Subaru there. During that America's Most Wanted segment, which we've also linked to on our website, Humboldt County Under Sheriff Curtis Cull specifically states that he doesn't believe Patrick was the one who drove the car into the sagebrush and abandoned it. Okay, so I just went and looked at the photo of the Subaru. And in my head, I was thinking it was, like, just on the wrong side of the road. Mm -hmm. It was, like, still on the road, kind of, but just off to the shoulder a little bit. No, this is off probably 20, 30 yards from the road. Yeah, it's way out there. And it's not off balance front to back like I had been envisioning either. It's Mm -hmm. literally side to side yeah the left side is way down and the right side is way up i don't think you could even take a nap at that angle without rolling into the side of the car the super seats won't hold you that tight no it wouldn't be comfortable and it's not like it's bucket seats or anything it Uh looks it's just like a forester Mm -hmm. So. so it's very odd position and you would have i'm surprised there isn't any signs of how it got there anyways just because it's in the dirt and dust and yeah i was thinking tire tracks but that just shows like a car almost plowed into a fence yeah it does and you know what are the odds that it stopped right before the fence if he had lost control accidentally well unless it was slow speed where it just got caught on the dirt maybe but but If he had lost control accidentally and spun out, there would 100% be telltale tire marks in the earth. And if he was spinning out while he did this, he would have hit one of those other bumps. Right, exactly. It's It's a very odd position for any car to be. It's very weird and it's very suspicious. It's almost facing the road, like it's off and hooked around. It's very suspicious. So where were Patrick and Lucky? When a local woman, who happened to work as a police dispatcher, drove by on her way to work the next morning, the vehicle looked empty. It didn't seem right to her, so she called the Humboldt County Sheriff's Office, her own dispatch center, to report the abandoned vehicle. The Sheriff's Office dispatched a deputy who examined the abandoned car. When he ran the license plate, it of course returned to Patrick Carnes of Reno, Nevada. The Subaru had plenty of gas in the tank, and personal belongings of Patrick's, including his checkbook, were still inside. According to Pat Carnes Missing, a website run by family members of Patrick's, the deputy radioed dispatch and asked that they contact Patrick. However, calls to Patrick's phone went unanswered. The deputy cleared the scene, leaving the Subaru high-centered in the sagebrush. 
I don't know what was going through the deputy's mind as he examined the car, but I did read an article from 8 News Now Las Vegas that included a quote on abandoned vehicles from Humboldt County Undersheriff Curtis Call. Undersheriff Call told them that a lot of times here in the rurals, you find cars parked out in the desert. People park and hike, rock hunt, and just leave their vehicles. This was unusual where it was parked. Quite unusual. The unusual factor under Sheriff Call was referring to was the way the car was parked, on the wrong side of the highway and stranded in the sagebrush by the fence, with the front of the car almost touching that fence. It doesn't feel like somebody just went off on a hike. No, it doesn't. And besides that, how likely was it that an 86-year-old would hike out into a remote desertscape alone to gather rocks? It just doesn't seem right. I mean, he could do it, but there would be better places to do it at, even if he wanted to. And if he plotted out all of his stops, they'd be, there would probably be an X on the map there. Right. So, two days later, on Sunday, April 17th, the Subaru was still there, unmoved. This time, a deputy asked the Reno Police Department to send an officer to Patrick's house to conduct a wellness check. They did so, but no one answered when they knocked on the door. Police weren't the only ones worried about Patrick, either. After two days of not being able to reach him, family worried he hadn't made it home safely from his road trip. Two of Patrick's sons went to his apartment in Reno to see if he was there. In fact, they arrived at the same time as the police officers who were dispatched there to look for Patrick. Of course, he wasn't there, and both family and police were left confused and wondering, Why hadn't Patrick made it home, and where were he and Lucky? When it comes to theories about what may have happened to Patrick and Lucky, the least dark option is perhaps also the least likely. But it's an obvious possibility, so let's address it. What if Patrick got his car stuck, or stopped for some other reason, and wandered off on foot and suffered some sort of accident? As a hypothetical example, Let's say that when Patrick got his vehicle high-centered in the sagebrush, he was jarred inside the vehicle and bumped his head, perhaps suffering a minor concussion. And let's say that then he exited his vehicle and, in a state of confusion, wandered out into the desert where he succumbed to exposure, dehydration, or accidental injury. It's possible, sure, and so are dozens of other similar hypothetical scenarios. But local authorities were aware of and worried about these possibilities, too, which is why they launched extensive searches as soon as word got back from Reno that Patrick hadn't made it home. And when I say extensive, I mean extensive. Authorities poured about 700 man-hours into combing Pumpernickel Valley. They searched by foot, by ATV, and by air. They even used canines in an effort to locate the missing man. And remember, this was desert terrain with sparse vegetation. If Patrick was there, they should have been able to locate him. All this effort, however, yielded absolutely nothing. Not to mention his age. It's not like he would go dozens of miles away in a short time. Yeah, this is not Usain Bolt on a suicidal mission, sprinting miles and miles out into the desert. I mean, his range should be pretty easy to cover. But anyway, there was no sign of Patrick or Lucky anywhere. Eventually, they conducted searches of abandoned mine shafts in the Pumpernickel Valley area. Still, nothing. 
It was frustrating, perplexing, and hinted at something much darker than an accident. After the thorough but fruitless search of Pumpernickel Valley, investigators began to focus more on the possibility that Patrick had been abducted. As for who might have abducted him and why, investigators think they may know. Sort of. They think Patrick may have been abducted and murdered by an opportunistic thrill killer. Perhaps a serial killer. And as for this possible killer's identity? Well, they probably drove a big rig. The concept of long-haul truckers combining work with the twisted pleasure of serial murder is nothing new. In April 2009, exactly two years before Patrick's disappearance, the FBI publicly announced their Highway Serial Killings Initiative. The Bureau's Highway Serial Killings Initiative is a data-driven project that maps where murder victims have been discovered along U.S. highways and works to identify suspects. The initiative has been a success, identifying hundreds of suspects and even more victims and many cases have been solved by connecting the dots, too. This is a big deal because serial killers who travel to commit their crimes in multiple jurisdictions are notoriously hard to identify and apprehend. A project like this is very much needed if they're going to be stopped. Yeah, it's definitely a difficult undertaking. Mm -hmm. The FBI states that the majority of suspects identified by this initiative are long-haul truckers, which makes sense. When it comes to professions most compatible with serial killing, long-haul trucking is way up there on the list. An offender's crimes are scattered throughout numerous jurisdictions, there are few witnesses on nighttime highways, and there's not usually a great deal of forensic evidence left behind. Often, by the time anyone realizes a person is missing or dead, the offender is long gone, and the victim's body, if and when it's discovered, may be dumped many miles away from where they were abducted and or killed. Of course, the vast majority of long-haul truckers are upstanding, hard-working people who play an integral role in keeping the American economy running smoothly. But all it takes is a few, a tiny fraction of a percentage of the men and women driving big rigs to scatter terror and heartbreak from coast to coast. In Patrick's case, as far as investigators are concerned, the possibility of a long-haul truck driver abducting and murdering him is very real. Humboldt County Undersheriff Curtis Call believes that not one, but two truckers may have worked together. Here's a quote he gave media, which I got from an article by 8 News Now Las Vegas. My gut tells me there's two people involved. Just for the logistics, just for the ability... Whether something happened west of Wells, where he was stopped. Hey, old man, come on and get up in the cab, because you're tired. Whether it was a lone trucker or two individuals working together, there's no question that Patrick would have been more likely than most to trust a trucker. After the conclusion of his military service, he'd actually worked as a trucker himself. He still admires those in the profession, and likely would have given anyone behind the wheel of the big rig the benefit of the doubt. And remember, he was following that truck to Elko when he was pulled over. Under Sheriff Call believes that whoever was driving that truck knows something, maybe even everything, about what happened to Patrick. Unfortunately, the truck and his driver have never been identified despite it being captured on dash cam. Although Patrick is seen following the truck, the nighttime footage is simply too grainy for investigators to make out a license plate or identifying mark on the truck in question. 
If you'd like to see for yourself, we've got a still frame image from the dash cam footage up on our website, lastseenalivepodcast.com. Scott, I'm going to show you the image now. Can you make out what that logo in the upper left-hand corner might be? Well, seeing as how I just looked at it and spent some time, it's honestly kind of like, I can't place it, but it's a logo I've seen before. Yeah, but it's just so... It's blurry, so I can't... It's so blob-ish in that blurry dash cam footage. Yeah, I'm going to keep looking to see if I can... If it can trigger a memory, but I've definitely seen the logo before somewhere. Right, well, in any case, I can't identify it. But if anyone listening knows that truck or its driver, please let the Humboldt County Sheriff's Office know. The driver is wanted for questioning in relation to Patrick's disappearance, but has never been identified. Lots of truckers have contacted authorities and given their insider insight, but so far, nothing has panned out. And that makes me wonder, was the truck driver really destined for Elko, or was that a lie he'd told Patrick? As far as I can figure, there would only be three reasons the driver would stop in Elko. To make a delivery or pick up cargo, or to rest. And Yeah, that. And look, (laughs) Elko is a small town with a population of just over 18,000. So there aren't a whole lot of businesses there, let alone businesses that were receiving or sending out cargo at 10 p.m., which is approximately when the truck would have reached the town. Surely investigators interviewed businesses in Elko to see whether they received or sent out a delivery that night, and if they had, who'd been driving for them? Alternatively, there's the fueling thing (laughs) that Scott mentioned, and then sometimes trucks park at night so the drivers can sleep, and this would seem like a logical explanation for a truck stopping at 10 p.m., especially if there was only one driver rather than a team of two taking turns behind the wheel. Okay, here, I gotta throw this out because... Sure. Background information. So, you've got your logbooks, which states you can only drive X amount of hours per 24-hour period. Right. So Elko may have been close enough to his pickup destination that he could stop there and then, because he couldn't make it that day, or Mm -hmm. he could stop for his allotted time and then go make his pickup or delivery the next day. Okay. So it doesn't, just because he gets there at 10 p.m. doesn't mean he has to stay there or he's got to do his pickup at 10 p.m. It could just be for his hours. All right, that makes sense. Um, But whether he stopped because of that or because he just really needed to sleep, either way. I looked at a map of Elko and counted 16 different gas stations located in and around the town in present day, at least one of which brands itself as a truck stop. Some of them are too small for a big rig to park at for the night, but at others, this might be reasonable. There's also a Walmart Supercenter in Elko, and I've seen tractor trailers parked in the far ends of Walmart parking lots a million times. Not to mention just on the side of the highway there. Yeah, but you can stop at the side of the highway anywhere. It doesn't have to be a specific town. But what I'm trying to get at here is that maybe if the truck had parked at a business for the night for whatever reason... There might have been surveillance footage that captured it, hopefully at a higher resolution than the Highway Patrol dash cam had. Maybe not, though, because the truck has yet to be identified. 
It seems most likely to me, though, that if the truck driver really did stop in Elko, it was to rest or fuel up, not to deliver or pick up cargo. Of course, I don't have any experience with truck driving, so this is just my amateur perspective. Yeah, and it could have just been that he was going through Elko and he was just following him till then. I mean, maybe, but why name that town specifically? There are so many others. He just really made it sound like it was a destination. It could have been his destination also. Whose? Uh, Patrick. It, It could have been one of his stops or his destinations on the map. Okay, one of his rest stops. And he was just following the 18-wheeler to that, or it could have just been a fuel stop for Patrick, and that's just where he knew the 18-wheeler was going through, so he was following the 18-wheeler through there. I could see that. That would make sense. Like I said, serial killers behind the wheels of semi-trucks are enough of a concern for the FBI to develop a project designed to identify and apprehend them. And that remote stretch of northern Nevada highway, the Big Lonely, certainly makes an alluring hunting ground for killers after dark, which is why it probably comes as no surprise that Patrick isn't the only person to have disappeared within its bounds. In fact, he's not even the only one to have disappeared from that very spot at exit 205. That's interesting. It is. So, five years prior to Patrick's disappearance in 2006, a woman named Judith Casita, also from Reno, disappeared. Her vehicle was found abandoned at that exact same spot at exit 205, just like Patrick's. We're getting there. And like Patrick, she hasn't been heard from since and still hasn't been found. Judith was in the process of making a major life change whenever she disappeared. She left her home in Reno on Valentine's Day 2006, allegedly setting out for Oregon, where she had family. She was 62 years old and wanted to get away from Reno and the life she'd lived there. After decades of marriage, she was no longer happy and wanted to break away. She left her husband a note explaining that she was feeling depressed regarding her marriage and life in general and desperately needed a change. So, she packed her bags, climbed into her Mazda pickup truck, and left. About three weeks later, on March 5th, her truck was found abandoned in the sagebrush by exit 205. What happened during those three weeks, and where is Judith? Investigators have attempted to answer those questions for years now, with no luck. How close to the fence was it parked? I don't don't actually, I'm not totally sure. I wonder, like, how close to that exact spot. It was was. pretty close. I don't know if it was nose up against the fence, but it was pretty close. Okay. And I know, when someone is suffering from depression, it's easy to wonder whether any harm they may have suffered was self-inflicted. And it's certainly a possibility that Judith decided it would be too difficult or too painful to start over. But at the same time, being depressed or mentally ill doesn't make someone immune to becoming a victim of crime. In fact, according to a professional physician study, which we'll link to on our website, lastseenalivepodcast.com, adults suffering from severe mental illness, such as major depression, which Judith may have been affected by, are more than 11 times more likely than the general population to become victims of a violent crime. I did not know that. I've known that for so long, and I've been telling people that for so long. It's really one of my favorite statistics in the whole world. It's that's shocking, though. I know. 
People always think of the mentally ill as people who perpetrate crimes, but in reality, they're far more likely to be the victim of crimes. Even more specifically and alarmingly, according to another study which we'll also link to, adults suffering from mental illness are more than five times more likely than the general population to become victims of homicide. And anyway, if Judith had parked her truck in the sagebrush to exit 205 and then gone into the desert to take her own life, where are her remains? They've never been recovered, despite the searches that occurred in the area. Not to mention there would have at least been bone or something left. Right. And then, as I stated, often when people talk about violence and its relationship to mental illness, it's in a context where the mentally ill are perpetrators, whether against themselves or others. But statistically speaking, we should be looking at the very real possibility that Judith was abducted and possibly murdered by someone else, perhaps even the same person who may have been responsible for Patrick's disappearance. It's certainly possible. I mean, it's very similar situations, somewhat similar age range. Right. They're both people who would have been physically and perhaps in Judith's case mentally vulnerable. Yeah, and they fit into a lot of similar categories except for obviously gender. I wonder if there's anyone else in the in a similar like groups that have been murdered in other parts of the area. There have been some older individuals who have gone missing along that same highway, not just in Nevada, but in bordering states. So I really think that it's possible that there may be a serial killer who's a gigantic coward who is preying on older individuals just because they're not as physically strong as someone like you or I would be. Yeah, it does seem like they're pretty pretty easily intimidated and like it, it just they wouldn't even need to be easily intimidated i mean 86 years of age you're just not as strong as a younger person no matter how mentally strong you are physically it's not the same yeah it's pretty cowardly right now we don't know that this is what happened but it's definitely a theory that investigators have considered and as for why five years would pass between these eerily similar events, well, they have an explanation for that, too. According to an article from Elko Daily, it's common for serial offenders to have gaps like this between their crimes because they were incarcerated for another, probably lesser crime they committed. So, hypothetically, a serial killer might have killed Judith, spent several years in incarceration, and then murdered Patrick after their release. And who knows how many other people they might have harmed and where. Do we know what forensic evidence was left in the vehicle? Really? There really wasn't any. They didn't find any suspicious fingerprints on the vehicle, any DNA. So it's really an enigma. That's just baffling. I know, right? But just like the Interstate Highway 80 itself, the possible serial killings aren't limited to Nevada. There have also been disappearances in the neighboring states of Utah and California that authorities suspect might be related. The desert is a lonely place, where evidence can be just as scarce as water. If you know anything about the disappearance of Patrick Carnes or Judith Casita, please let investigators know. You can call the Humboldt County Sheriff's Office at 
623-6429. Or, if you'd like to remain anonymous, contact Secret Witness of Northern Nevada. They can be reached via phone at 775-322-4900 or via their website, secretwitness.com. That's all for this episode of Last Seen Alive. We hope you've enjoyed listening. Make sure to check out our website, lastseenalifepodcast.com. For lots of photos from this case and links to the articles and video we've mentioned during this episode. While you're at it, follow us at Insta and Twitter. Our handle is at LSA Podcast. New episodes of Last Seen Alive go live every other Monday. See you then. Meanwhile, if you've enjoyed this episode, please take a moment and leave Last Seen Alive a five-star review and tell your friends to check us out too. Don't forget, this episode was brought to you by Audible. Visit audibletrial.com slash lastseenalive to redeem your free membership trial and get a free audiobook of your choice. Plus, two free Audible originals of your choice from a curated collection every month for subscribers. Last Seen Alive is written and researched by Leah. Audio engineering and editing is provided by me, Scott. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 